Chapter thirty nine of Darkness and Daylight or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Piotr Natter. Darkness and Daylight or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter thirty nine by Thomas Byrne. Cunning shoplifters and skillful pickpockets. Female operators and how they work yielding to sudden temptations holiday week in new york city is the shoplifter's harvest the ladylike and gentlemanly pilferers of the city know that christmas offers abundant opportunities for plying their wicked trade so the shoplifter sallies forth and the pickpocket wends his way with keen eyes and ready hands among the throng of the shoplifters who infest the city the large majority are females there are various reasons for this the work of shoplifting is comparatively easy it is often remunerative and above all it is congenial there are few ladies to whom a visit to the stores and the handling of the rich and beautiful goods displayed are not joys which transcend all others on earth the female shoplifter has that touch of nature left in her which makes a dry goods store variety bazaar or jewelry establishment a most delightful spot to exercise her cunning in the last few years professionals of this order have wonderfully multiplied but their increase has been no more than commensurate with that of the metropolitan bazaars these places are most preyed upon and in them the temptation to larceny is most freely offered the general exposure of the goods on the counter or floor the unceasing throng the constant diversion for eye or ear of watchers all serve to prepare an easy way for the shoplifter the clerk's duties are generally manifold salesmen or saleswomen it is all the same they must take down and display wares for customers extol the quality of the goods wait on half a dozen customers at one and the same time and through it all answer a thousand idle questions while all the time the endless throng are whirling past and one can have no eyes for individual loungers shoplifters infest these places and have ample opportunity to ply their vocation even those who are merely not strong in resisting temptation are only too liable to pick up some stray trinket or bundle and walk off with it articles of value are seldom captured by the shoplifter dried goods lingerie or cheap jewelry are more often taken but it is in the great number of such petty larcenies that the losses to shopkeepers chiefly lie the ordinary female dress may be skilfully constructed so as to be an expansive receptacle for plunder of all kinds and the professional shoplifter takes good care that she is prepared for her trip with just such a dress into it she gathers her booty safely stores it and if suspected or even detected in the act of picking up an article she becomes highly indignant boldly subjects herself to an immediate search and nine times out of ten the employee who is not familiar with criminal methods misses the false pockets and is forced to admit the offender's innocence in spite of the evidence of his own senses the cloak is also a useful article of attire for the shoplifter and women have concealed large quantities of goods under a sweeping outer garment stolen rolls of cloth costly dresses and even sealskin sacks have been found under them one clever professional carried under her arms numerous articles of various sizes which it would puzzle a man to carry about with his outstretched arms 
Not long ago a woman wearing a large cloak was noticed leaving one of the bazaars on 14th Street, and a moment later a clerk came out, saying that a number of valuable bonnets were missing. A detective elbowed his way through the crowd and overtook the amply clad lady. Afraid of making a mistake, and thereby subjecting himself to merited censure by making an improper arrest, he conceived the ruse of stumbling, and at the same instant raising one of the suspected stranger's arms. The trick worked admirably. The arm went up like a flash, and the ground forthwith was strewn with bonnets. She had nearly two hundred dollars' worth in the collection. There are occasions when the shoplifter need not convert herself into a migratory storehouse. She sometimes has a confederate possessing ready fingers and a fluent tongue who makes the circuit of the counters. The other presses along after her, gazing vacantly around and keeping severely distant from any of the goods exposed. When her confederate has slipped something out of sight, she conveys it adroitly to the other, and the pair go on again. If the more clever operator be detected, no more than a single article will be found on her, and she can generally brazen her way out of the predicament by alleging an absent mind or some uncommon destruction elsewhere in the store. There are generally but two classes of shoplifters, the regular criminal professional and the kleptomaniac. The very poor classes seldom take a hand in it. Poverty is held by the world to be the badge of crime, and the poor slattern who enters a store is sure to be so carefully watched that larceny is next to impossible. The shoplifter is always the person of fire apparel, and she generally has a comfortable home. If she be a professional, she may be one of a criminal community, and her home may be shared by others engaged in equally evil ways. If she be a kleptomaniac, and in shoplifting the word has peculiar significance, she is possibly a woman whose life in other respects is exemplary. It does seem strange that a wife and mother, whose home is a model one, who attends religious service regularly, and who seems far removed from the world of crime, should be so carried away by her admiration of some trinket or knick-knack as to risk home, honor, everything to secure it. But the annals of metropolitan offenses are full of instances of just this kind. It is her fondness for finery that nine times out of ten gets her into trouble. A woman leaves a happy and well-provided home for a shopping tour. She buys the necessary articles she wants after much careful selecting and sharp bargaining. Then she looks about her and goes counter-gazing. This is the fatal moment. Some taking article, it may only be a trifle, catches her eye. She has already spent the contents of her purse, but the new object absorbs her attention, and every moment it becomes more fascinating. She must have it. Then comes temptation. The trinket is exposed. There is no one about. It would be such a simple thing to take it. Conscience, stifled by cupidity, is dormant, and the desire of possession completely absorbs her. A moment more, and the article is under her cloak, and all of a tremble she edges her way to the door, half frightened, half regretful, yet wholly swayed for the time being by the possession of the moment's idol. Then comes detection. Everything rises to betray her. Her frightened glances, her sneaking attitude, the closer clutch she has upon her cloak. She is accosted, questioned, and then every thought of home, family, and the disgrace that she has brought upon herself rushes before her, and she summons all the pluck there is in her poor fluttering heart, and denies. Fatuous soul! 
she forgets that the sanctity which a moment since surrounded her as an honest woman is now stripped from her she is searched the stolen article is found upon her and she stands there drooping and despairing a proven thief every year over and over again is this sad scene enacted among the real criminal set of shoplifters may be found some who are skilful in picking pockets they are a dangerous class for at no place are opportunities for plying their trade more frequent than in a shopping bazaar the shopper's attention is deeply engaged by a bewildering display of goods dear to female hearts minds are full of purchases and heedless of pockets satchels and purses are laid carelessly upon the counter the shoplifter is always on the alert for these opportunities and is ever ready to take advantage of them not long since a lady placed on a counter beside her a well-filled purse a moment afterwards she mechanically picked it up again to pay for a purchase she opened it there was a wad of paper in it she looked at it again it was not her own but one that had been adroitly substituted for it an unusually cunning male shoplifter successfully operated for several years by means of a scheme that he had devised himself he travelled through england france and other european countries leaving a trail of mysterious thefts behind him upon his return to the united states he was detected in the act of committing a robbery and his plan was exposed cloth and silk houses were his chosen fields of labour he invariably carried a large-sized valise the bottom of the bag which parted in the middle was movable and was hinged at the sides near the handle was a spring arrangement which connected with the movable bottom his plan was to enter a store while the clerks were engaged in the rear going boldly up to a counter he would apparently in the most careless manner set down his valise upon a pile of goods as he did so he would spring the bottom and thus adroitly bag a roll of silk or fine cloth having secured his booty he would make a small purchase and ask one of the clerks for the address of another firm in the same line of business his appearance never caused the slightest suspicion and the thief until his methods were discovered always managed to leave a store with his gripsack full of plunder two or three shoplifters have been known to enter large cloth dry goods or feather establishments in the morning just before opening time while the porter or clerk were sweeping the store one of the rogues would then engage the single unsuspecting guardian of the store in conversation and invariably succeed in luring him to the rear of the place this was the thief's opportunity and when the clerk's back was turned the shoplifters confederates were busy in a twinkling they would conceal as many goods as they were able to stuff into false pockets in their clothes and quietly make off then the first man would innocently tell his dupe that he would call again a few skilful male and female shoplifters occasionally succeed in making rich holes by substitution they operate solely in jewelry stores and have a fondness for handling and pricing diamond rings and pins in carrying out their scheme they visit a jewelry store and examine goods a lapidary who manufactures paste rings and pins is next visited he is employed to make a substitute for the piece of diamond jewellery which the shoplifter intends stealing a good description of the article wanted is given and is soon finished by the obliging lapidary two or three of the shoplifters acting in concert now call at the jeweller's store 
while the diamonds are again being closely examined, the spurious article is deftly substituted for the genuine one. After an extended and critical examination, the purchase is reluctantly deferred, the jewellery case is returned to the showcase or safe, and it is often days before the fact is discovered that a costly diamond ring or pin has been stolen, and a paste one left in its place. Shoplifters who make a practice of stealing unset diamonds and other precious stones sometimes substitute spurious stones to cover the theft. They have been known to swallow the gems, and when arrested on suspicion, were able to escape conviction by the clever manner in which the trick was performed. But while the shoplifters' numerous depredations have made people wary, and in the aggregate have entailed great losses on merchants, their operations have frequently injured unblemished reputations and subjected tender feelings to great suffering. Most of the large jewellery establishments and great bazaars now employ detectives, while others employ floor-walkers. Many of these do not possess the intelligence and cunning their position demands, and serious mistakes often occur. Ladies of high social position have time and again been accused of larcenies of which they were entirely guiltless. Some really absent-minded shoppers have carried articles away from the counter utterly unconscious of the fact at the time. Of course, it would require an adept in psychological art to tell the really absent-minded but honest woman from the one who pleads temporary aberration of mind as excuse for actual crime. The guilty have again and again secured immunity from punishment by a well-concocted story of forgetfulness and it is equally certain that the innocent have more than once suffered for the guilty. Pickpockets are an interesting class of thieves, and among the men and women who follow this particular line of crime there are many grades. The male operators generally dress well and display abundant jewellery, but the females, while pillaging, generally appear in humble attire. Professional pickpockets are naturally great rovers, and are continually travelling from one end of the country to the other to attend large public gatherings. It is in such crowds that these desperate rascals most successfully practice their nefarious calling. They are to be found, one day, among the assemblage present at the inauguration of the President of the United States, another day at the funeral obsequies of some distinguished person, and the next week at a country fair. At the funeral of General Grant in New York City, an army of the light-fingered fraternity flocked from all parts of the country, expecting to reap rich harvest among the vast throng. However, the best laid scheme saw mice and men ganged after glee, and notwithstanding the fact that there were hundreds of thousands of people that day along the route of the funeral procession, not a single watch or pocketbook was stolen. Never before in the history of the police department had there been such a clean record. The day before the funeral, all the professional pickpockets then in the city were arrested upon suspicion, and the police magistrates held the rogues as prisoners. The alarm was then raised, and hundreds of criminals on their way to New York gave up the project, left the trains, and scattered in other directions. A few, however, who were reckless enough to persist in their schemes, found detectives awaiting them at the several depots. They were taken in charge and were kept safely housed at the police central office, the various precinct station houses, and the tombs prison until the funeral was over and all the strangers had departed for their homes. When there was no one to prey upon, the disgusted rogues were liberated. 
The effort made to thwart the pickpockets upon that occasion was a bold one, but the end certainly justified the means. Of professional pickpockets there are many types. Odd are the notions that some people entertain of the personal appearance of criminals of this class. Some believe them to be a forbidding and suspicious-looking lot of cutthroats, but on the contrary they are very like ordinary individuals, and unless their faces are known, their appearance or dress would never excite curiosity. Still, between the several classes of operators there is a striking difference. The pickpocket, either male or female, who dexterously abstracts a purse or captures a watch or diamond pin on any of the principal thoroughfares in a streetcar, railroad train, or church, does not in any way resemble the person who will perform the same operation in a side street or at a public gathering. Those who seek only large plunder are entertaining conversationalists and easy in their manners. They are generally self-possessed fellows and are dexterous and cautious operators. Women make the most patient and dangerous pickpockets. Humble in their attire and seemingly unassuming in their demeanor, without attracting any notice or particular attention, they slip into an excited crowd in a store or in front of a shop window. Their quick eye and delicate touch will without difficulty locate the resting place of a well-filled purse. That discovered, they follow the victim about until the proper opportunity presents itself to capture the prize. Sometimes they go off on thieving excursions in pairs, but an expert female pickpocket invariably prefers to work alone. The latter class are difficult to run down. Men, after committing a large theft, are in nearly all instances extravagant and reckless, but women are generally the reverse, and are careful of the money they have stolen. Should they have reason to feel that they are suspected, they will remain concealed for a long time. There is on record the case of a female pickpocket who, after capturing a pocketbook containing thousands of dollars in greenbacks, became aware that she was suspected and succeeded in eluding arrest until the only witness against her had died. The day following the robbery, the thief, who was well advanced in years and was possessed of an excellent education, entered a religious institution under an assumed name. After telling a plausible and sad story of her unhappy marriage to a drunkard, she finally gained admission to the home. Her conduct there was exemplary, and she remained for years. At last she read of the death of the wealthy lady whose pocketbook she had stolen, and the cunning pickpocket, aware that the danger of conviction for the larceny had passed, vanished from the home and returned to her old trade. There are other instances illustrative of the care with which women avoid detection that are on a pair with the one mentioned. Pickpockets who pursue their calling under cover of a shawl or overcoat carried carelessly over one arm, invariably the left one, generally take a seat in the car on the right side of the person they intend robbing, and operate under the coat or shawl. In case the pocket is high or too small to admit the hand freely, a sharp knife is used to cut the side of the dress or trousers of the victim. Others of the light-fingered fraternity wear light overcoats with the large pockets removed. Entering a crowded car, a thief, while standing up, selects a woman who, while paying her fare, has displayed a well-filled purse. The thief, when the opportunity occurs, carelessly laps his coat over her dress and, by inserting his hand through the outside opening of his false pocket, 
quietly proceeds to do his work. Female pickpockets, who operate in cars and boats, invariably use cloaks, which shield them while stealing. They press against the person whose pockets they are rifling, and the cloak completely hides the movements of their hands. Some expert male pickpockets ply their vocation alone. One of this class succeeded in stealing a valuable watch from the vest pocket of a distinguished jurist some time since, while the latter was viewing a procession from the front of a leading hotel. Another class of pickpockets frequent churches and funerals. Women generally do the stealing, and they pass the plunder to their male confederates, who disappear with the watch or pocketbook the moment it has been captured. The men, as a rule, are old thieves, who have lost their nerve and no longer dare to work for themselves. Those that operate with an assistant always require the latter to do the crowding or engage the attention of the intended victim while his pocket is being plundered. A mob is always composed of not less than three men working in harmony. Just as soon as a watch or pocketbook has been stolen by one of these men, the thief hands the plunder to one of his accomplices, who passes it to the third or fourth man, as the case may be. This style of thieving is to protect the actual thief, and only yields small profits on account of the number engaged in the crime. Should the victim discover on the spot that his pocket had been picked, and cause the arrest of the robber standing alongside or in front of him, the failure to find the plunder upon the prisoner would create a serious doubt as to his guilt. Cunning old professionals, veritable fagins, are the brains of these mobs. They delegate a daring young man with quick hands to do the stealing, and the instant the purse, watch, or jewel has been passed to them, they disappear. If it is a purse that has been taken, it is promptly rifled, and the empty wallet thrown into an ash-barrel or sewer. The veteran first allots to himself the lion's share of the booty, and afterwards splits up the remainder with the other members of the gang. Serious trouble, sometimes resulting in bloodshed, occurs over quarrels concerning the division of spoils. Should a newspaper item announce that the stolen pocketbook contained a large sum of money, when the leader of the gang had said he found but a few dollars in it, the thief's co-partnership would be summarily dissolved by a sanguinary affray, the cause of which, for the protection of the others, would not be revealed. Sidewalk committees, at the time of military parades or political processions, have a couple of young men who are known as pushers. These go in advance of the thief and locate the whereabouts of the plunder for him. They rush and push to and fro in the crowd, or at a street crossing, jostling against everyone with whom they come in contact. When the pusher discovers the pocket in which plunder is sure to be found, the fellow signals to the pickpocket indicating the victim and just where the purse or wallet is carried. Then the robbery follows. Some nervous people, while carrying large sums, betray themselves to a shrewd thief by their actions and afterwards think it strange that the rogue should have known the very pocket that contained the roll of greenbacks. If they had remained cool while riding in a car or passing through a crowd, and had not clapped their hands every few minutes on the outside of the pocket in which they carried the money to feel if it was still there, they would doubtless have avoided loss. Pickpockets, like other individuals, are not gifted with second sight, and they always watch for signs to guide them in their operations. If their mode of working was better understood by the public and properly guarded against, 
their vocation would in a short time become unprofitable when a mob of pickpockets start out to work a crowd on a horse-car or a railroad train they break into twos the part of one is ascertain the location of the victim's money he gets alongside the man whose pocket is to be picked and with rapid movement he dexterously passes his fingers over every pocket his touch is so delicate that it enables him to locate the price and to ascertain its character whether a roll a purse or a pocket-book the surging of a crowd especially on a railroad train accounts to the suspicious traveller for the occasional jostling he receives the most common receptacle for the pocket-book is the left trousers pocket when the victim is selected the second man plants himself squarely in front of him while the other crowds up behind him on the right side the operator in front under cover of a newspaper or coat thrown over his arm feels the pocket and if the victim is a straight-backed man in standing position he finds the opening of the pocket drawn close together in such a case it is dangerous to attempt the insertion of the hand a very low-toned clearing of the throat followed by a guttural noise is the signal to his confederate to exert a gentle pressure upon the victim's right shoulder this is so gradually extended that the traveller yields to the pressure without knowing it and without changing the position of his feet this throws the lips of the pocket conveniently open for the operator in front who does not insert his hands to draw the book out but works upon the lining he draws it out a little at a time without inserting his fingers more than halfway should this process of drawing the contents of the pocket to its mouth be felt by the victim another low clearing of the throat gives the sign to the confederate and the game is dropped if the victim's suspicions are not aroused the pickpocket continues at his work of drawing the lining out until the roll of bills of pocket-book is within reach of his deft fingers the successful completion of the undertaking is indicated by a gentle chirrup and the precious pair separate from their victim to ply the same tricks upon the next one stealing watches and pins by gangs of pickpockets who ride in street cars is of frequent occurrence in taking the watch the same system of jostling and crowding is resorted to while the wire the one who actually does the work is stealing the watch he raises it out of the pocket by means of the chain with his left hand which is concealed by a coat or shawl after the watch has been taken from the pocket the thief drops it into the palm of his right hand and by a quick turn of the wrist the ring is twisted off the chain which is seldom taken is quietly allowed to drop down and usually the first intimation a person has that his watch is gone is when his attention is called to his dangling chain the moment that the watch has been stolen the man who takes it passes it to an associate who leaves the car at once and the others comprising the gang ride a square or two before getting out some people wonder how pickpockets succeed in stealing a watch without first unscrewing the snap at the end of the chain not knowing that the ring has been twisted out to capture a diamond pin the method is slightly different rogues of this class when at work generally lift one arm above the height of the pin and while the owner's attention is attracted by something started for the purpose the jewel is abstracted by an exceedingly quick and clever movement of the thumb and forefinger of the other hand as the pin starts from its place it is caught in the palm of the thief's hand and before the owner has discovered his loss the jewel has passed out of the possession of the man who stole it
it is a good plan for persons carrying large sums of money or valuables not to allow their attention to be suddenly diverted by seeming disturbances or other attractions they are the pickpockets opportunity and are often gotten up by them for the purpose End of chapter thirty nine